0: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, here we are. Don Nguyen is in the house. If you were to talk to most knife makers and ask them to put on a list for their personal Mount Rushmore of American knife makers you're on most of them do you know that
1: i have never really actually thought about that
0: well i'm just telling you be from you know we've been talking to a lot of knife makers in general and the consensus is is the level of your work is the highest i mean bladesmiths blacksmiths knife makers master bladesmiths non-master bladesmiths you are are people look to you in terms of inspiration for some of the most innovative knife designs around
1: damn
0: yeah damn damn right damn and you should take it and you should appreciate it because it's true i mean when i talked to Moreko Mamasi, who's on my mount rushmore he mm-hmm. says if he could have one if he could have anybody's knife. somebody asked us on knife talk they said if you could have one person's on uh, a chef knife from one person in living or dead who would it be I think we had like a list of two or three and he said your name easy I mean it wasn't even like didn't even think about
1: it I mean he's on my list <laughs> oh, there you go <laughs> mutual admiration society yeah.
0: you know, that's good so so it I'm fascinated by you because I was doing a lot of research congratulations on the cover of um that Tucson magazine Thank that you. was outstanding picture p.s.
1: Yeah, they, they did a really good job on that. They did
0: a good job, but you look you looked serious. I think, that, I think the interesting thing about your, your that picture was you looked about as serious as that knife.
1: Yeah. Uh, they just told me to do a couple of poses, and they're like, smile for this one. Don't smile. It was like, Give me an angry face. And then they didn't tell me which photo they were going to use. They just took a bunch of them, and then that's the one that ended up being on the cover. I was like, oh, cool. that's a That's a really cool one. Super striking.
0: Well, I know that. I mean, we've 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 hung out a little bit at Blade Show, and, and I I notice uh, when you scroll through your Instagram feed, when anytime there's a picture of you, you're usually ha- you have that very serious look.
1: Yeah, I call it resting dawn face, basically <laughs> resting bitch face, because yeah, I've had that for <laughs> as far as I can remember. Really? Yeah, my parents when I was a little kid were just like smile, just just always like you always look like you're pissed off at the world. And I'm just like, yeah, but I'm feeling fine.
0: <laughs> what well, so so you grew you grew you grew up in, in Colorado, right?
1: No, I grew up in Tucson. You I was born up, and raised here.
0: Oh, you were born and raised in Tucson? Why did I think you were born in Colorado? I have no idea. Huh. I thought I saw somebody said you were from Vale. Or you lived in Vale, oh, maybe?
1: Vale, Arizona. Oh, It's right next Arizona. to Tucson, yeah. So born and raised in Arizona. Yeah.
0: What is that like?
1: That felt I don't know. It felt normal to me. Yeah. Um, I went to just some basic public schools, and when I was a kid, I liked drawing stuff, and I like. I think I've always had this thing where I like ideas and making them happen, and that's always kind of stuck with me.
0: That's you know that's the one thing about the making community making makers and sculptors and knife makers and people who actually put things together is. I think the greatest satisfaction is when you have an idea and you actually put it together and it, you, you turn, you kind of manifest it into existence.
1: Yeah, it's the best thing ever. So
0: you go to high school and I know that you got involved with racing cars, right?
1: Yeah, that was, that was in college, actually. So actually, funny story. When I was in middle school, my dream job of all time was to become a car designer. I just wanted to design like supercars and just everything and then i lost that for years just i lost drawing i picked up some other stuff and then i never really came back into it and then in college when i went to the university of arizona there was a club there that i was introduced to called formula sae and this is a intercollegiate club like a lot of different universities across the nation and the world have a similar club where they build a formula scale or a formula style race car from the ground up <laughs> and i was like oh my god that's my shit right there. Like, that's what I want to do. And it kind of felt like full circle because I've always wanted to make race cars and shit like that. And then there it was.
0: Did you have any, did they, did you have any, uh, how did you learn how to work, build cars and work mechanics and stuff like that? That, that is totally a I am like, I'm a perfect man, born and raised Manhattanite. I have no idea how cars work. I know that in my mind, I think it's like a, the human body, like each part is like. You know, represents a part of the human body, but other than that, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I can change a tire and the and the oil, and that's about it. Yeah, how did you I learn mean, how to about cars?
1: I learned as I went in that club, and it was just like day one I was like, well, if you don't know anything, we're gonna start you from scratch. Like this is how an engine works. This is what the components are of this car. This is how it generally comes together, and then you kind of pick what you're interested in. And at first, I was like, I like the chassis and like frame design. So I learned how to kind of design and build a race car chassis. And then I went to some other stuff, like I started doing the fabrication. And then I learned a little bit about suspension and brakes on the way. And then towards the end, I was doing basically project management for that that team. Wow. And it was a lot of fun. That I'm sounds like a big... Miss it. Was it a big team? Yeah, it was probably it depends on the school but my team was maybe 15 to 20 students in it. Huh.
0: And then you so you built a car from scratch.
1: Yeah, every year it was design a new car, build it from scratch and then go compete at the end of the year.
0: So so you did for all 4 years that was your that was your jam.
1: Yeah, that was my college life right there. That and then making nice part-time.
0: So to so the I want to I'm really the, the car thing is fascinating to me because you know I've, the funny thing is when I talk to a lot of makers about secondary school a lot of or for, or, or high school for that matter they find they've they the, the usually the story is is I hated school I wasn't interested in anything and I didn't feel like I needed to do anymore and I didn't never got what I wanted Jesse savage he felt the same way until he when he left school he ended up becoming uh an art he became a published poet and he actually you know in a historian it was almost like he didn't need the school structure and to you know to find what he wanted but Hmm. i'm fascinated by the people who actually find their love in the secondary school it sounds to me like that was i mean did you have a what was your major
1: i majored in material science and engineering and the reason why I did that was because when I first got interested in knives, I told my parents, I was like, look, I want to drop out of college and I want to start making knives full time. And they were just like, are you crazy? Like, what are you thinking? And so we eventually came up with this compromise. It's like finish college with a degree that can get you a job after. Right. And so I was like, well, that sounds relevant, right? How, how hard can it be? Yeah. And it ended up being one of the fucking hardest things I've ever done why but I engineering school is hardcore like it is it's no joke yeah. it was just like uh, every morning every afternoon every evening every night was just classes homework tests sure. and I I wasn't really good at school so I barely kept up I almost failed out multiple times huh. and then somehow towards the end I actually graduated
0: so if you were to with if you let's just say let's just say the knife making never really was kind of on the ball in the in the picture and you were going to tip what kind of job would you have gotten with your engineering degree like in my mind i don't know what the fuck an engineer does i mean it's like you're working on like you working on bridges or you know you're worth mike Quisenberry on the train you know he's he, when i think of an engineer i always think of mike Quisenberry, who is actually runs trains so that's right. how stupid i am <laughs>
1: Uh, actually, if I didn't find knives, I have no idea what I would do. Because that major was because I got into knives. Huh. So, yeah. Um, before I got to the U of A, I was in community college. And I was just bouncing between a bunch of random shit. So I wanted to be a full-time musician at first. And then I was like, oh, chiropractic sounds cool. I'll try that. And then I went into, like, biology. And then I went to theoretical physics. And I just... Most of those were just to impress other people. Like, none of them were right. for me. Right. And, then, and then I found knives somehow, and then that's how I came to get into materials engineering. But, yeah, as far as engineering, if I didn't do knives but I still followed through with that degree, um, the other choice I was thinking of was getting into motorsport engineering. So sure. the dream job would be, like, do some sort of engineering for, like, race cars, like a race car right. series, but that is super cutthroat like it's so competitive and hard to get into you've basically got to be like the best of the best and then when you start in there you're 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 starting from ground zero again mm.
0: i mean I, I i can only imagine i would think that you know i mean the, the glory of working on race cars is probably about as good as it gets i mean every you know most children love cars and you'd think that that would be you know something that would be everybody's dream would be now from what i understand as your history tells me, you were cooking food at a friend's house real or your house, and you were, you, you were using a knife that was super dull. <laughs> and then you got into, looked down the rabbit hole of YouTube sharpening videos, and you turned into like a sharpening maniac. And that's when you decided, maybe I should start to make a knife.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's basically the nutshell. Like I was cooking, yeah. and then I had to saw open an onion and try to dice that. And then it got me down that sharpening YouTube rabbit hole. And then yeah. I saw people make knives on YouTube. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a thing. Like, people are actually doing this. Yeah. And then from there it clicked. I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's my life calling right there. And I just decided, you know, I'm going to pursue that for the rest of my life.
0: I, you know, it's, if, I think that knife making is such a fascinating thing. And, but the different types of knife makers, it's almost like a completely different language. Because yeah. you, were, you were making knives, and when I talk to a lot of knife makers, or, or when we talk to knife makers on, 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 on Knife Talk, a lot, of times it's, a lot of times it's because of a need, not because of a want. Like Jared Thatcher is a perfect example. He was, he shot his first deer and he was trying to like clean it or something like that. And all the knives he was, you know, the cheap knives he was using was like garbage. And so all of a sudden he decided maybe I need to make my own knife and then went down that road. I think a lot of culinary guys are, it's because they're, you know, culinary guys, are, you're doing a lot of cooking, and I know that you're a big cook. So when, how did you, what was the first knife that you made?
1: The first one that I tried to make ever was a big, I mean, 240 millimeter Gyudo. Like, that was the first one I tried to do, and wow. most people were telling me, it was like, that's stupid, start with a small knife, Don't don't do a big one. I was like, no, I'm going to... Aim for the stars and end up somewhere out there. And then, right. of course, they were right. Like, it was a bitch to do. Yeah. And I ended up with a, a paring knife that was way too thick. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times, especially, you know, when you learn from – I mean, I think this isn't even – not just YouTube and going to classes – Everybody's eyes are always bigger than their stomach, as, the, as they say. I remember when we were doing some classes uh, at my my last shop, uh, Hudson River Ironworks. There were people who wanted to take a knife class. They never hit a, you know, they never made knives before. And instead of making this little tiny knife, they're like, I don't want to do that. I want to make a Bowie knife right out of the shoot. And I think right. that what happens is, is like there are some people who are just like they're able to understand, and then there are other people who are who are just like, you know, fuck you. I'm gonna, of course, I'm gonna do it. I, I like the <laughs> fact that you had that. Idea. I mean, you were now in regards to the knife making and the motorsport, uh, the working on the cars. What was the kind of like the timeline in in, in terms of making your joining that club, joining the, the uh, formula one club, and, and then you know working on your first knife?
1: Uh, let's see. So basically, I was in community college up until probably a couple of years after I graduated high school, and that was when I was lost. And then I stumbled on the knife stuff, and that's when I decided to pursue that. It was probably another year or two where I was still in community college doing, like, machining and welding classes just to get my feet wet. And uh, I was doing – I was taking a blacksmithing workshop class at the community college. And it was basically just, like, an open workshop. You make whatever you want. That's where I started making knives. And then after that, I went to the U of A, and that's when I – kept making knives part-time and then that's when i started making the race cars at school for four years
0: with the race cars i'm trying to make i've had the, i've been thinking about you all week and I, and one of the things that i i notice in the design of your knife your knives now and the the connection between the race car driving and the race car design i see such a close similarity and I'm obviously if people have made that decision that that connection too, and I, the reason why I make it is because I have a similar but different when I started making sculpture I was trying to make static objects have the illusion of movement that means like you know if I was, I was trying to make it I was in my mind I was making all this steel sculpture and I was thinking how can I make something that when you see it it's steel and it's heavy and you all you automatically have those immediate notions towards weight how can I make this look like it's moving Hmm. So I was making a lot of sculpture that was in re- movement oriented, and, and one of the things I was doing is I was doing these giant tools and the tools had handles and they were directional. And when your eye sees them, maybe they don't know exactly what they are, but they understand the movement. And one thing is, is like when you're doing that, and especially with your with the knives and the cars, the when you're designing cars, I would imagine you're also selling. The idea of slickness of movement of, of velocity of direction, you know you and when I see your knives and I see most people's knives, but especially yours you're also selling that the to the the imagination to the buyer that this thing is going to be super slick it's just going to be cutting through everything, and I feel like there's this real connection between the car design and the knife design. Not to mention that your designs, there, there is definitely like a connection between how cars look and their their angles and their their the movement, and I'm I'm convinced that there's a palpable connection that hmm. you've always had, even maybe since you were a kid. Hmm. You know what I mean?
1: I, I know mean, here's what a mean.
0: perfect example. Here's a perfect example. If you look at a ball, even like a basketball or baseball, any kind of round ball, severe. If it's on the ground, as soon as you see it, you'll ne- your mind will never say that thing, I'll bet that thing moves fast. You know, based on, you know, like a baseball, when it's hit, it moves fast. But you don't, when you see an object, like a sphere, you don't immediately say, you don't really compliment it as in like that thing's going to move. Right. But when you look at a car, like a Jaguar, Ferrari, or whatever, name the car that you want. The lines and the and the the lines and the the direction and the slickness and the angles and stuff like that, it gives you the, it gives you the it makes you imagine that this thing is going to move.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I actually don't think about it in that sense um, when I'm designing them. Actually, (laughs) the the signature design that I that I'm pretty well known for that like tapered hexagonal shape that was mostly by accident.
0: Huh. How did that happen?
1: I when I was studying knife designs and I was looking at what I liked online, I was I was just kind of like thinking through it. I was like, "Well, octagonal handles are pretty cool. Those are classic. They right. fit well in the hand. You can index them well, and you can use them for basically any sort of grip that you want." And then I saw handles that were tapered, so that looked cool, and I saw some hexagonal ones, and I just saw a bunch of combinations of different things that i liked and so i was just trying that stuff out and then i was just doing i was just shaping a handle and it was supposed to be an octagon i accidentally made it a hexagon and then i tapered it and i had a pointy front and that was basically the beginning of that design right there
0: it's 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 the most as far as i'm concerned it's the most intimidating types of handles to 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 execute i've never even tried one the only thing i've gotten gotten close in terms of these faceted style handles is i try to when i think about uh making contours and stuff like that i always think about when, when you're forging you forge from square to uh octagon then you you know you break the corners and make it an octagon and then you break the corners again and then you got a round mm-hmm. so what i always think of is when i'm when i'm grinding handles or something like that i'm you know starting square and then I'm breaking the corners and then I'm breaking the corners again but a lot what you do and what a lot of guys do I know uh Moreco does with his Japanese cowboy style handles and you know um Helle Hasenberg and guys like that they they it's like it just seems to me much more I'm much more like aerodynamic. It makes me think of like, you know, stealth fighters of the back, you know, from a couple of years ago. And there's mm-hmm. tr- there's, there, to me, it's very, very like, so, I mean, I, when you, I think I'm like, all right, the guy loves race cars. <laughs> you know, I just can't, I just don't know how you get to it, to be honest with you. I, I find that there's definitely connection. And the other thing I, I think is, is that, you know, the race car thing is fascinating to me because, you know, that too is, is, the real thing is is both so both you know your chef knives and the race cars you know you almost even when you're just designing them you're giving the the you're giving the uh the the you're giving the idea of movement static yeah. movement right mm-hmm. but then the truth is in the you know regardless of what people think the truth comes out when you turn the you know you turn the engine on or or you use the knife yeah. It's very fascinating to me, but I think that I think that there's more to you than just like I just you know stumbled on this hexagon. I think you always had it there.
1: Yeah, I, that one was an accident. But from then on, it was a lot of refinement. And I guess what I'm looking for now when I design something or I tweak something is, do the lines look right? And I I don't necessarily think of it in motion like you described or the way that you you try to do with sculpture. I I just look at it as like where do my eyes look first and where do they go after that and does it flow right right and i always think of things in terms of like visual balance huh so that's very important yeah it is so i look at the tip where it's at how does it taper towards the blade how much activity is there in like the heel the ricasso the bolster area because it's kind of like this rhythm you get a little bit towards the tip and then it's it's quiet until you get towards the middle Of that like handle intersection and then it's quiet again until you get to the butt of the handle and I just kind of look at that and I see does anything stick out when I when my eye goes from left to right or right to left or whatever like that where
0: did you learn how to do that
1: though where did you learn where did you get the I mean
0: you didn't I mean unless you've taken art classes or critical design classes is that from engineering
1: no I don't I feel like I don't even know like proper design or proper art or composition that's just kind of something i i started to look for myself because i mean i mean i'm
0: trying to dig into something i mean your knives are i mean you're on the cover of blade magazine i mean that's i mean that's that's one of the biggest compliments you can get i mean if you really think about it because you know they're i mean that's all they do is talk about knives and then when they do a whole episode a whole issue on culinary knives your knife is there you know, and I so I just the, obviously you've hit upon something that is um, is striking to most knife makers, but also as an object. I mean, they are extraordinary. I mean, they just look like I said. Even if you're not a knife maker, you look at them and you see the movement. You know, mm-hmm. I just I just I'm fascinated by it. Like your early days, you said you used to draw a lot. When you were drawing, you were drawing cars and superheroes.
1: I, it was like cars, watches, uh, just other random expensive shit.
0: Wow. What do your parents do for a living, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Uh, they're retired now, but uh, my dad used to be a programmer at IBM. Ah. And, yeah, my mom was working different jobs here and there.
0: Huh. Was that... So, I'm just trying to figure it out because, I mean, it's like, it didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, that, that's the thing. is, And the materials you pick, too. A lot of, your, a lot of the materials that you pick. Are well, I see a lot of that c tech and carbon fibers and very like very like not maybe not the classic styles of that most knife makers would use, but they're so slick and they're so like f- almost futuristic like I feel like that's you know you're like this you know your designs are more on the futuristic side, yeah,
1: they are All right. well, most of go. them
0: well, but I mean I mean if you look at you did a, uh, you did a saya. It was like a, almost segmented and it had these like, almost like, like armor, armor sections. Then they were pinned in and then they had yeah, like I remember relief that one. inside. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: That was a project. So the knife itself was something that I had thought about for a while. I was like, I want to make a kitchen knife that looks like a fighter, like, you know, like a buoy it has got right. a, you know, a clip and everything. And and then I had to make a sheath for it. I was like, well, the blade is pretty extraordinary. How do I make the Sia, like match up to that? And I didn't want to just do a simple carbon fiber panel, but I don't know where I got the idea from, but I saw probably some sci-fi stuff online or just some random concept art or something. But the, the individual paneling was just an idea that struck out to me. I was like, hmm, I should do that. How hard can it be? And it ended up, it ended up being really hard. And I, I was like, I hate this. I just want to finish this now.
0: It looked, because you, so it, just to describe it to the listener. So it's a saya as a sheath, wooden, you know, usually they're wooden sheaths, but, you know, whatever. And then there were, like, these uh, patterns, almost like the way you see a turtle shell, where, like, there are, like, these, like, uh, shapes and they kind of like bump up against each other and there's space in between. It had it like a, almost like a, like a body armor almost. It looked like it was, it was something for like a Batman movie. It was really like intense. And it, I looked at it and there was a picture on your Instagram uh, page and it was a picture of it in, you know, while you're building. And I was like, God damn, that thing looks like it's such a pain in the ass.
1: <laughs> it was. <laughs> I and can f- feel it. Yeah. At first it's was like, Oh, how hard can this be? And then I was just like, what was I thinking? This is so stupid. But
0: I feel like you do that a lot in terms of, like, you, when you're laying things out and you you do a lot of layout drawings. I know that you just finished this uh, taco sword for yeah. the chef, and I love the video of you designing it and kind of... Bringing it to the chef and saying, "What do you think of this? And what do you think of that?" And I love the I love the arrogance. I'm I'm, I'm saying that I love the arrogance of the guy saying, "I need to change this. You need to change that." I was I was about to mm-hmm. say, if I'm Don, I'm gonna be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm gonna make it. What are you telling me? I'm, what are you telling me? I want to change this. Change that. I just drew this motherfucker. I can't do that much changing.
1: Yeah. Now that was actually a lot of fun too, and it was so different from what I usually do. That was kind of just a nice departure.
0: Yeah. It was big. It was, and you was uh, that was some. You did a lot of forging on that.
1: I did. Yeah, that was the first time I forged in in a long time.
0: Well, wow, that mean So the knife is like how long of a knife was it?
1: I think the blade was sixteen inches. So that's a, plus that's a the handle monster. was like twenty two, twenty three inches long. That's a monster. Yeah, it was. It was what is big. what is
0: this guy making? Ta- I mean, it's like we, unless you're making the biggest taco in the world, it's like. What do you need a 16? I mean, I'll, I'll usually I'll get a customer who'll say to me, and they don't know anything, and they'll say, oh, I'm used to a, four, a 14-inch knife. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Wait, what do you mean, a 14-inch blade? And they're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a 14-inch blade. I'm like, no, 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 you're not. You, There's just, just no way. And then it's like, oh, well, yeah, well, they just say a word. They just say something they think they hear. I'm amazed it was 16 inches long.
1: Yeah. So he he actually came up to me a long time ago, and he was like, hey, I want a big knife for Appa's store, he does like the, the spinning trompo and stuff like that. Oh, right, right. So right. it's like, it's roasting as it's spinning and he wanted a long blade to do those like slicing cuts. And the one he had been using before was just kind of like a 12 inch butcher uh, knife for like breaking down stuff. Yeah. And I was like, let's make a sword. Let's just make it 50% longer. He's like, okay. I was like, oh, well that was easy because <laughs> i've been wanting to do just big ass knives for a long time that's, that's my favorite shit
0: yeah yeah your knives are traditionally long like i you i mean that's i mean from what i understand i mean I, when i first started making knives i started making knives the length of the knife i had when i got to culinary school in my mind i thought well in culinary school you use nine and chef knives and maybe that's maybe i'll just start with that and i'm amazed i'm amazed that i now i'm kind of backing down to eight-inch chef knives because i find that especially for the home cook they're for me for me and for some of my customers are a little bit more easy to go with but your knives are are generally nine inches and longer right
1: yeah so the standard is like a 240 which is around 10 inches long yeah and um i, I do tw- 270s on a regular basis and sometimes i do even bigger uh, That's just kind of what I like. Like, not everybody likes that for sure. No, of Um, course. And some of the new ones that I'm doing are smaller, like they're 8-inch or I'm thinking about doing some more 7-inch. But, yeah, I I generally just like the 10-inch, 11-inch blades. They're just just fun. There's something sexy and, like, beastly about them.
0: Well, that's also – it also is interesting in regards to the design itself. When you start to draw something – where the blade is longer than 8 inches. The handle usually stays the same. So the longer the knife, the more exquisite it can become, you know? Mm-hmm. It becomes more, especially on the on paper. Like when I have drawn knives out like I had to do do some drawings and then I was kind of taking old templates of 9-inch chef knives and 10-inch chef knives and 8-inch chef knives and for sure the eye went went berserk for the longer blades because it just like it just seems though you're hitting more of that you know golden proportion golden ratio you know and i I think that you know even when even if i saw a picture of your knives in you know on a you know in instagram or whatever i can tell that they're much longer than nine inches because there's something just kind of magnificent about the the whole the whole view i think that that's the thing about your the lines of your knife knives are just exquisite
1: thank you oh there you go
0: so what's next for you i know wait, wait before we go next before we go next i know that you've also done like traditional noodle knives i don't think they're called noodle knives but i'm calling them noodle knives
1: uh i've done some bastardizations of them yeah <laughs> i would not call them the, like actual proper Traditional. Yeah. Then you call a noodle knife, carries. and
0: then it's okay. No one's gonna be mad. At you. you say I made a couple noodle knives.
1: Yeah, uh, I I made one that was inspired like like that, but the geometry is definitely like an axe. Like I call it my kitchen axe, and I use it for chopping firewood. I use it for like mincing garlic. I use huh. it for literally everything. Like that thing's been abused so much. But I've also done one that's a little bit more traditional shape, but it's it's double bevel instead of single bevel. So. It's not like the, your normal, like minkaria or soba But but yeah,
0: you have to back me up a little bit. So for the viewer, the, the way that the knife looks is it looks as if it's like a, almost like a cleaver, but then when you get down the heel, it comes back almost like an, almost like, like it goes back over your, over where your knuckles would be.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's for like cutting what
1: noodles? Noodles, yeah. The noodles that are like hand... Uh, I don't know. There's and there's like a... I, I looked it up a long time ago, and now I can't remember.
0: <laughs> now, now that I think about it, because I looked at them, I was just like, damn hey, man, those things look like they're so slick. The reason why they come, I would imagine, I'm imagining. So so imagine a, a like a cleaver, and let's say that the cleaver, the blade end is like nine inches, and then you, you, you put your finger down where the bolster would be and then it draws back uh, almost halfway back past the handle and the reason why it's that long i would imagine is because when you're cutting the noodles you want to get them in one chop
1: i think so yeah so the one that i made actually wasn't for noodles and that's why i'm kind of like fumbling a little bit on the exact details on how they're used right um but i think that's the case you you have your hand right above the noodles and you Basically, just deliver the force straight down, and you cut it in in one single cut. Um, the one I made was actually for a barn tenor to chop like big blocks of ice. Huh. So it was inspired by a a Sobikiri, but but it it's used to make like solid ice blocks.
0: Wow. But you have made like a couple of those.
1: Yeah, I've made. I think I've made two of them.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, I saw the pictures. They look. I mean, they look. Am- they look kind of like out of like some sort of like, you know monk movie like some warrior monk movie that the, you know the dude like pulls out of his pants and right he's getting you with the noodle knife you know <laughs> so back in school you're back in school you're on this team every year you're designing something new and it's it's designed by committee right you guys are designing the 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 the, the car by committee
1: yeah so the the team is broken down into like different sub subsections like the frame suspension uh the body the engine the drivetrain and everyone works together to design one functional car and hopefully by the end it's actually functional i mean that was sometimes the hard part is actually making it um
0: was it hard working with a team
1: oh my god yes
0: like what would be the, I mean, because I mean, that's what, I mean, that's the thing about the knife maker is the solitary worker, right? So yeah. when you're on a team where you have, I mean, designing a car that's actually going to work, I can't think of anything more like difficult to try to figure out as a group. How are you working together?
1: So when I was in my last year, when I was the project manager for the the design part, the hardest part was working with all the other college students because they all have their own lives they all have their own classes and they all have their own vision and goals for the car some of them wanted to make the fastest car possible with like a lot of sophisticated carbon fiber aerodynamic parts and like as much power as possible and you know get the fastest track times but I think for a successful team they have to think about it as like a business it's not just the car it's how much manpower do you have? Are you recruiting people? Are you training them well? Are you thinking about sustainability for like next year? Are you thinking about how much testing time are you gonna get, um, the reliability of the car? Are you gonna think about how much design time and how much build time? And I think those are the most important questions because a lot of the time, the biggest failures in those teams is they have huge ambitions and then they fall flat and then they get zero testing time, and they show up to competition with a car that still isn't working and has zero test time Hmm. and zero design validation. So those are the teams that do bad. We've had that problem, I think, most years. And the year that we did the best is when everyone was on the same page, like, look, we need to build a simpler car, one that's actually reliable, one that we get maximum testing time, one that we can train the drivers for the longest. Because the drivers, ultimately, the, I mean one of the biggest factors. If the driver's not comfortable in the car, they're not gonna right. not gonna drive fast.
0: Would you do ever do were you ever one of the drivers?
1: Yeah, I drove the car a, a few times.
0: How fun was that?
1: Yeah, it was the best. I mean your your ass is like three inches off the ground and this thing goes zero to sixteen in about three seconds. Oh
0: my god. This seems like it's the biggest organization of all time. You're recruiting people, you're preparing for the future, you're preparing for the following years. Oh This yeah. is, like, a big deal. This is, like, where did the money come from for this?
1: Sponsors. Um, some of them came from the university. It depends on which university. Like, some schools uh, provide a lot more financial support to their teams. And some teams have to fend for those They have to find sponsors. They have to find people that will make their CNC parts for them, people that will give them actual money in, in hopes that, you know, when this – when the students finish the program and when they graduate and they go looking for jobs, they're going to be better trained than pretty much any other engineering student out there. Like, the, exper- the experience that you get in that kind of environment is basically real-world engineering that the company doesn't have to pay for. Right.
0: How much... So, how much I'm sorry, for another, keep, keep going.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that. Like, basically, some of my colleagues in there are some of the best engineers that I know just because they've gone through that program and they've gone through those hurdles in design and like working with a team and dealing with failure. Huh. If
0: you If you had an idea how much one of those cars, how much the cost to build one of those cars would be, what do you think they would be, be the cost of building one of those cars? Would
1: Our cars range from, I think just parts alone, not even considering like the CNC labor was about thirty to forty thousand dollars and that's on 40, the low end
0: just for the parts not for any of the labor any of the kind of like main, yeah you know, heavy duty construction no, that's, that's still a lot of money
1: oh yeah it's a lot and some of the teams out there are working with like half a million dollar budget million oh dollar God. budget it's insane yeah
0: so these were all and these are all engineering students
1: mostly actually i wish there were more students of different majors than that. like i wish there was like Business students. I wish there were engineering management students. They, we had some crazy other uh, students that came from from majors that like didn't even remotely apply to what we were doing. Like we had like a wildlife studies student there. We had um, we had a lot of general studies. It's it's ultimately what the student wants, how much they're willing to work, and how much they're willing to learn. Like sure. we had a lot of engineering students that were honestly terrible because they had an ego and they're just like, well, I know better than you, but they don't.
0: I think that it's interesting that, you, I think that that, I think you're 100% right. Having people in different, different avenues or different areas to come in and give you something with fresh eyes is so important and, I, and I'm convinced that this all really, really was a huge influence on you in the knife making because, oh, you know. Oh, absolutely. Be, be, well, why don't you talk about it?
1: Um. So I think if I didn't go through that and I just went straight to knife making, I would be a very different maker. So some things that I tell other people is like, I didn't like college. There was a lot that I didn't like. I didn't like the classes. I didn't like the bureaucracy. I didn't like a lot of the teachers. I didn't like the labs and homework and tests and bullshit. But I liked some of the hard learned lessons that i got and most of them were in that club um it was it was a lot of like organizing a lot of learning about myself so like one of the biggest lessons that i learned is like time management and priorities and dealing with failure and setbacks um that that's cut that stuff stuck with me
0: right i would imagine i i would think that when you were talking about how, you know, the the amount of time for testing and the testing before you go on the track and being able to organize yourself, those are the things that when I look at video of you working, especially, I think for me, one of the things that I I don't know why it is that I always, when I see the pictures of you, I love the fact that you have your disc sander with (laughs) the, with the, with the, with the paper facing up. When I see you working with the disc sander, I always, that's to me is always like the, that's the fine tuning that's the fine tuning and the testing and the kind of the slow and just kind of making sure it's right and I find that th- that had such a huge that club had such a huge influence on you because it gave you the ability to to not just say I'm just going to go in my backyard and make a knife mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of people when they make knives especially is they don't use they kind of like almost they shed the information that they learned out in the world You know, because a lot of these guys, you know, making knives is a lot of these people. It's like the, 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 uh, it's like the, the, um, you know, God, I'm not having the wrong word for it, but, uh, it's, it's like the, the oasis. That's the word I was looking for. It's the oasis from their life. You know, they're not working at their job. They're not working with these other people. And then they're making their own rules and they're, they're their own boss and they're making their own decisions. And then they're not taking what they learn from, you know, the other under other things that they've done, and then making their work easier and better. Yeah, I just think that I think that for you especially, I mean, that, I think that the connection between the knives and the and the and the and the cars, the the working on the cars is so huge. And the other thing is, is I believe that your engineering experience and you know the ma- materials work and stuff like that it made you come to knife making almost as an outsider because, and I think that that's the best. I think that that also, I think a lot of people, they learn traditionally. And what happens is, is they get stuck within these traditional guidelines as opposed to coming at it from a totally different point of view.
1: I completely agree.
0: You know, because I, I don't, when I, when I'm in my shop, I don't see it as a knife shop. I see it as a metal shop. And I try to take upon me the things that I learned from working in a you know a very very fast paced metal shop where we're making railings and you're making a thousand pickets and you're do, you know you're, you're organizing your parts and you're putting them together and every day is it you don't need instant gratification and it's the sum of all parts and I find that a lot of knife makers have a lot of hard time being able to kind of grow based on what they think they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So do you think you'll ever do any more with cars?
1: I have a personal project car right now. And eventually down the road, maybe I'll build another race car. But it's a lot of money. And now that I have to pay for it myself, it's like, well, I don't have that kind of cash. Is this the Jaguar? Yeah, this is the Jaguar.
0: I love the Jaguar. (laughs) I love the Jaguar because there were moments. I saw pictures. You have a Jaguar. I think it was maybe a year ago or so. It was on, it was on blocks mm-hmm. or whatever. It was in the backyard. There might have been a sandstorm or something like that. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, you turn this thing on, and it like turned over. I, I, at one point, you I look, you look at it. It looks like almost like it could be like. A part like a background set for like some sort of like desert movie. You know, it's this abandoned car. Yeah, there's with no hope of rescue, and then you (laughs) and then you're just kind of like cursing it. Yeah, tell me about this car. Where did you get this car? This Jaguar. This,
1: so this is a it's a 1976 Jaguar XGS. It's one of my strange dream cars from years ago, just because it was. Is kind of like a the underdog. Like nobody really liked them when they got released. It was it had Why? a weird history. It came after the E Type, and the E Type was considered like the most beautiful car ever designed. And so they they went from that to a GT that was. It just didn't hit a lot of the bills that were that were kind of sought after in the, the auto industry back then, and it just didn't catch on. Like it didn't do that well. Um, it drank gas like a motherfucker it had a slow automatic gearbox and it was just it just kind of missed the mark Hmm. but i think it looks really good um i bought it mainly for the sound because they have it's got a v12 so i mean you do some exhaust work to it and it sounds amazing that's that's honestly one of the biggest reasons why i bought the car
0: you bought the car for the potential sound
1: yep (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah, did so it we, ever
0: run did it ever run when you, when you bought it did it run
1: no so when I first saw it on Craigslist it was sold by a dude in Phoenix this, this guy just had a boat yard and he had this like clapped out old Jaguar that had, it had been sitting there for like a decade and I didn't know if it ran I do not know if the engine was completely like seized or fucked or whatever um, it didn't have a floor like the floors are all rusted out didn't have wheels or tires, needs brakes, doesn't have seats, doesn't really have an interior. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of things. Huh. And he was just like 700 bucks. And I was like, uh, I just went full time. I just hired my full time assistant. I just moved into my new place. I'm in debt. I don't have money. I'll buy it. What possessed you? I don't know. Something possessed you because obviously
0: you see the amount of work that has to be done on this car. There's no floor.
1: <laughs> you don't you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. you, don't know,
0: you don't know. Something must have said to you, I need to fix this. This is my new thing.
1: I think it's just part of my rebellious streak. So like, it's the same thing with like knife making or like when I was learning music, I always chose the most difficult thing possible just because people told me not to do it. And so this car is notorious for having problems and people are just like don't buy it it's the it's the dumbest thing you could possibly do especially mm. that one and i was like yeah but it's cool it's got a v12 it's rare and yeah it's don't been a tell lot of work.
0: Don't, don't tell don not to do something that's like that's like the reverse psychology He can't control himself I
1: you're know. like
0: magnetic to you have a magnetic response to that yeah that must be very hard <laughs> i would i would be so irritated i was <laughs> oh, God, don't tell me I can't do something. I can't. I can't take one more thing on.
1: I know. Yeah, that's just kind of how I was I've always been. I like being the underdog for a lot of situations. They're like, oh, that's a stupid idea. Don't do that. I was like, well, I'll fucking prove you wrong. Like, don't tell me what not to do.
0: That's the underdog is the best. Yeah. It's it's because because you're the proving something, proving some people wrong. There's no. It's it's not. It's it's not a very. Noble, noble pursuit. <laughs> it's not a noble pursuit to be like fuck this guy. I'm gonna do it just because he said so out of yeah. spite. That's what when I worked with uh, my friend John Ledford, who's a master. Uh, he's an awesome black blacksmith and taught me everything. He used to do everything out of spite. <laughs> he would do he would do everything out of spite. Like he would he would copy. You know, if somebody he saw something forged and he'd be like, I can make that. And he's like, and someone would say, You you can not make it. He'd be up all night. And he'd show up the next morning. He'd pretend he'd got some sleep, and he'd be like, "Ah, it was easy." And he had to do. He had to do everything out of spite. And I think that there's, I think that there's something. It's not a. It's like I said. It's not noble, but at the same <laughs> time, it's it feels good. It feels it's, good to prove someone wrong.
1: It's kind of fun. It's super
0: fun because it's. A, I told you so, is an underrated thing to say. It's underrated as a as as a noble <laughs> gesture. Yeah. Who wants, to, who wants to be told you can't do? When I was a kid, I used to get gas lit all the time by my dad. He would yeah. say, and I think that in the, the whole idea about gaslighting is, you know, the, the story is, is this dude was trying to kill his wife, so he would turn the gas on a little bit more every day. And then she started to notice she's not feeling very well. And she thought that she could smell. It. And she said, you know, I think something's wrong with the gas. And he'd be like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. And he'd just keep turning it up every day. And hmm. he and he killed her. That's what gaslighting is. And I feel like there, when I was younger, my dad used to say to me, you don't know what you're talking about. And to try to make me not feel comfortable about my decisions that I was making, he would say, you don't know what you're talking about. I could say anything. I mean, I could say anything, so you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it got to the point where it made me, instead of being spiteful, I was like, yeah, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And then when I got older, I definitely was like, I w- was much more interested in proving people wrong. And I think that a lot of makers feel the same way. Hmm, They're, yeah. Maybe they have a job they don't like, maybe they don't, maybe somebody's told them their whole lives, you know, you suck at this or whatever. And then you find something that you can do that's good that people say, "Wow, that's really cool! Can you make me one?" Next thing you know, you're almost doing it out of spite, despite other people saying, <laughs> "I can't do it." Like Marek was a perfect example. Like I think that he, I think that he's constantly working against this feeling that he has, and I'm going to have him on at some point. He listen to this, and I don't <laughs> think I'm saying anything wrong, but I think that he's working against feelings that maybe he doesn't deserve what he gets or maybe he's not working hard enough or I i don't know what it is but I feel like there's a little bit of spite kind of helps propel you along like I told you I could do it yeah you know yeah I agree so that car you bought it 700 bucks I'm, ass- I'm assuming you had to get a trailer yep <laughs> and you you <laughs> and you dumped it outside your house yep <laughs> and what, what what is the what was the first operation you had to do on it
1: uh first i had to make sure it won't catch on fire because that's the number <laughs> one problem of those cars
0: is that right yeah even if it's been sitting around for a while well
1: that's the problem is that um there's a there's a the fuel the fuel line design on those cars is it's not smart um there's a lot that can go wrong. People don't take care of them because it's hard to maintain. And then the fuel lines start to get old and brittle and then they crack. And then they spray fuel over the engine while it's driving. And then all of a sudden Yikes. your entire car is on fire.
0: That so, happens a lot?
1: Oh, yeah. It's a notorious problem. So, There's...
0: what's your plan? To, how are you going to, how are you, what, so what did you do to make sure that didn't happen?
1: Well, I, I replaced all the fuel lines, uh, I changed the fuel pump. I, I did some other stuff to make sure that it runs and then we tried to turn it over and and it started like I bought a $700 car that sat for 10 years at least 10 years and I didn't know if the engine was good and it started I don't know if it's running on all 12 cylinders but it goes
0: (laughs) wow so what's the next step on it
1: I'm working on the floor right now so I'm still like cutting rust out and patching it all in and Rebuilding all of that, like, rot, basically. And then after that, I should be able to put the fuel lines back in, make sure it starts again, and then start getting it ready to drive.
0: How much work do you think you need to get it going?
1: I hope I can drive it by next year.
0: By, by the end of this year? Or by the uh, I mean, sometime, sometime in 2021?
1: Yeah, sometime 2021.
0: That's awesome. So do you think, you think that's, that's... You know what? That's amazing. It's amazing that you have the the you're having the giving yourself the organ you're organizing yourself in order to to repair this jalopy. Is it now referred to as a jalopy? Would you call it a jalopy? Are you offended that I called it a jalopy?
1: No, I mean the thing's a pile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is the best. You know, the funny thing is, is still I constantly try to you know thinking about what you do in the cars. And I think the cars are such a huge part of your life. The cars and the knives are so interesting because. And I think that a lot of knife makers feel this is working on a car is a big production, all these big objects. When I made sculpture, the biggest sculpture I made was big. I made sure that it could fit out the door. I made sure that it wouldn't hit the ceiling. I made it. I made sure that I could actually move it myself. Like I would make the, before I made the 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 sculptures, I would made, I would make the structure that I could roll it around the shop because I was afraid, I was like, I don't want to start this thing. And all of a sudden I can't move it. I once made this giant lure that was like out of steel. And I had to have it on a chain hoist because I couldn't move it. It was too heavy. And I, and I from then on, I was just like, I'm not doing that anymore. And I started to make smaller and smaller sculpture. And then when I started making knives, I thought, this is very approachable for me. I don't feel like I'm going crazy because of the size or the scope of the work. Yeah, Because I think with your work especially, it's so intricate and it's so magnificent. Besides the design, design is one thing. Execution is a whole other thing. When you put something on paper and then you manifest it into something real, close to the drawing, that's really, that's really amazing. I'm, I think that this jalopy is going to be slick based on your experience as a knife maker.
1: I hope so. <laughs> I hope
0: so, too. I hope so, too. So that brings me into the next thing I want to kind of dive into. And I know that when you first started knife making, it was to dice onions. I know that you're a big ramen guy. hmm Tell me about your obsession with ramen.
1: It started about, I think, two years ago or so. Maybe a little bit before that. Right. But before that, I didn't know anything about ramen. I was just like, what, the instant noodle shit? Like, whatever. And then maybe it was through some Netflix documentary or maybe some YouTube videos. I find everything through YouTube. Yeah. Um, I saw that ramen was like a legit thing. Like you do the bone broth, you, you do every single component differently. Like the noodles as a whole entire operation. Like every single component is an art in itself. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I started eating more ramen. I was like, oh, this is good. Yeah. And then... It was one of those things where it's like, well, I know how to cook a little bit. This is one of the most complicated things I can learn. Why not just do it? And so I just like started hosting ramen parties at my house, and I would, I would spend like two days making a pork tonkotsu broth and do up the chashu. I make the tare. I, I do all the toppings and stuff like that, and then now I'm starting to learn how to make the noodles. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. Ramen is
0: fascinating because in the united states when i grew up i was eating my, my i was eating a lot of top ramen or whatever you know the, the little bricks that you get mm-hmm. and stuff like that and del- my dad used to make them for me for lunch and i loved them and and then I, I i the same thing when you say ramen most people just think of that you know the you know 35 cents in a supermarket ramen that you mm-hmm. just you know i i never really realized how the components are so specific so you mm-hmm. have the the noodles that's a whole different ball game oh, and then yeah. you have the then you have the stock and then you have tare which is like well ta- tare is like a uh concentrated sauce that you put in in the beginning right
1: yeah it's like the flavor bomb like right. if you just had the broth by itself it would just taste like meaty water right but you put this like flavor bomb with it that's a lot of them are like a lot of, a lot of fish elements a lot of umami like dashi and stuff like that you taste that by yourself, and it's like, oh, man, that's fucking salty and fishy as hell. And you put them together, and you're like, oh. I didn't,
0: realize, I didn't realize that it really had to be diluted. I thought it was just a component. I didn't realize that it was like a concentrated blast.
1: Yeah, so from what I know, most ramen shops, they have, like, different broths that they do. Or they have a single broth, and they have different tares. And that's why they do that instead of just seasoning the broth itself. Another reason is like the concentration as, as you cook down a broth, you don't want it to get more like salty and, right. and unbalanced. And then the last thing I think is temperature. A lot of the elements that are in a tare, like the fishy elements or the kombu or that kind of stuff, you don't want to boil them because it'll destroy all the, I mean, all your hard work.
0: Huh. So you like steep it almost like tea.
1: Yeah. It's very temperature and time specific.
0: And then you get into the noodles, and the noodles have like this. It's almost like baking soda. It's got like a something similar to me. Like when I taste, I taste like a pretzel. You know, pretzels are boiled in in baking soda water before mm-hmm. they're baked. There's that quality, that kind of like baking soda quality. That it, it's almost like an alkaline. It's, yeah, like a, and- it's like it's like an alkaline flavor in the noodles that create that spongy. It's not like pasta. It's not like the kind of pasta you just boil. it has yeah. this kind of like a a sponginess that is in an alkaline flavor that's just so dynamite
1: it's so good It's just like I could eat ramen noodles by themselves, yeah, it's so good God it's, it's just there's just something now? about like the the alkaline salts and something about like being very specific about the protein and your flour and all that kind of shit and then the hydration and and then you get this super chewy snappy noodle that you can't yeah. get like really anywhere else it's a production though isn't it making real
0: ramen i mean when i was when i was a kid you just knocked out this put the water in you put the, the packet in you boil <laughs> it up you throw the thing in bingo bango bongo you know you got lunch yep I mean, I, but it's, it's such a production. Like we have a ramen place nearby and it is unbelievable. It is. I mean, it is like the flavor of the broth. I mean, it it does have like such complexity. That's not very much like, like chicken noodle soup or something like that. It's, Mm -hmm. it's got a really deep complexity. And I, I would imagine that's what the taré comes from.
1: Yeah, I think so. Hmm.
0: Well, I know that you're a fan of, you're also a fan of Ivan Orkin. Yeah. Ivan Orkin is a very interesting guy. He had a, was it a chef's table episode on Netflix? Yeah. He followed me on Instagram for maybe five minutes. <laughs> he's, a, he's a fascinating guy because he's a he's from New York. And he's, he's, he's a Jewish guy from New York who moved to Japan and learned how to make ramen. Started a ramen noodle place. In to- Tokyo, if I'm m- not mistaken, against all odds. Yeah. Like a white guy moving to Tokyo to start a ramen joint is like against all odds. Oh, yeah, he was like a professional chef. I think he was a professional chef in the United States and then he moved to Japan. I don't remember why. Opens up a ramen place against all odds and it turns into the best ramen place in Tokyo. Is that right? Or one of them?
1: I can't remember, but it is definitely notable.
0: He's very much like you because he is also very, uh, I don't give a fuck. He says what he has to say. It, yeah. it is the one chef's table where he's just like, he's cursing along and he says what he says. And I don't give a fuck and blah, blah, blah. There's a quality to him I see in you that it's that underdog. You know, it's that, it's like, it, he was against all odds. I mean, it yeah. was like, I, I would imagine a white guy opening up a ramen joint in Japan is just like, you know, you're asking <laughs> for trouble. Yeah you know but i mean he did it anyway and it was just like he out of spite he completely like dominated the his competition and it was like and i don't think it, i don't think it made him much more popular in japan
1: yeah i don't know i i think that's the why he resonates so much with me is cuz yeah. I, I saw the episodes like man this guy's a fucking rebel like he yeah. doesn't give a shit about anyone else like he makes what he wants to make
0: it's definitely true there is a definite connection because um, there is that sense of like, you can't, t- I mean, can you imagine, I mean, listen, you, 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 g- you bought a $700 piece of, you know, garbage, <laughs> j- you know, Jaguar out of, the- out of spite. This guy moves to another country and he's like, I'm going to make, I'm not even from this country. I'm going to make your signature dish. I'm gonna make it better than everybody else and go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, it was like the ultimate spite move, Yeah. you know? And now he's back in New York. I know he has a ramen place in New York. I think he does. I think he's married to. I think he's married to a Japanese woman. He's got like. Um, he's very. He's very respectful of the culture. I don't really know him that much except for that uh, few little things. And I know that his ramen joint in New York is like super sought after. Yeah, but it is fascinating to me because you know there is a connection between the two of you. I, I see. I see uh, this like. I don't know what that's I don't know where that joy of spite comes from I don't where do you know. think it comes from because you're also hmm. a glutton for punishment you're a glutton for punishment too and I'm saying this because you're braver than I would ever be you get tables at the blade show I'm anybody I know who gets a bl- table at the blade show I automatically salute you and think you're a glutton for punishment and you're crazy
1: oh I don't do that anymore I did it I think once and I was like hmm I've done it once I've had my share I'm good now
0: yeah it's I feel like that in itself is it's like salmon swimming upstream to die like I feel like the people who do it are, are brave God bless them but it's just like I feel like you guys are selling I think you're like you're selling hamburgers at a hamburger convention
1: yeah it's tough that's uh that was tough that was t- did you did you were
0: you well received or did you have a good time or was it just like
1: yeah I had a great time but it's like I I spent so much work to make knives to bring that I was like oh well I hope I sell these because this is a lot of fucking work right and I think I sold maybe one knife there out of the whole bunch it's like oh I I thought I was gonna sell more yeah
0: it's tough I I just don't think I don't think especially the year you went. I don't necessarily think that the people who are going to buy your knives go to the Blade Show anyway.
1: That's exactly it. It's like, that's you know? not the right audience for what I was doing.
0: It's a strange, it's a strange environment because, I mean, I go, I've gone, I don't know, two or three years in a row or two or two or three years, I don't remember. And I walk around and stuff like that. It's, you, be, you I would imagine that the, the people at Blade Show who are having booths, you're so vulnerable. You're vulnerable to... You're, you're putting yourself out there. You're making the best stuff you can because you want to be accepted by your peers and maybe have like good you know situations with people better than you and you want to get good feedback and stuff like that. You don't want to look bad and stuff like that. And then you're at the mercy of the people who are just passively walking by and don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like I, When I walk through the aisles, I have a very specific way I go. And I go through all the vendors' places first. And then when I'm walking through, I usually have like people that I'm looking for, but when I'm walking past vendors, I keep my eyes down. I don't want to lock eyes because I don't want (laughs) them to think, I don't, I literally, I don't want them to think I'm being, I'm being disrespectful to them by just walking past their work. It's weird. I actually, this year, I'm going to, I'm going to admit something to you. The fact that it was canceled, I'm not bummed out about it. I, because I really legitimately, I feel when I go to the Blade Show, if I don't give every, you know, if I don't, if I, I don't want to be disrespectful to people I'm walking past.
1: Yeah, I get that feeling. It sucks. It sucks. Yeah. But,
0: you know, I get a year off so I can work it out. I'll work it out. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to learn how to be a little bit thicker skinned. I'm fine. <laughs> I just need to go see Jeremy Spake and buy some, buy some fruity wood and I'll be fine. I'll be right? fine. Right. Yeah. So what's the next, what's the next for you? What do you think, you, where do you think you're going to be going? I know you, I mean, like I said, you're a man of, you're a man of incredibly talented. Whoa, here before I, you know, this is the funny thing is this is the <laughs> second time I've stopped where you, I'm, I'm changing gears again. Yeah. I said to you where's next and I have decided not to. One of the things you do that I identify with, and I, I feel like I got your number, is you're very self-deprecating. Mm, yep. And I feel like that self-deprecating humor is protecting yourself, because that's what I do. I do self-deprecating humor against myself, or self-deprecating humor, because I feel like it's a degree of protection. I'm not. I'm, I'm outwardly saying I don't take myself that seriously, and I'm just a dope like everybody else. And don't worry about that. And I, you know, who the fuck knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> and I feel like it's. I feel like this. It's a very. It's to protect my ego. Uh.
1: I I would probably agree with that a little bit. I've never really broken down why I do that, but I think part of it is I do think it's funny. Like sometimes it is just funny to make fun of myself. Yeah. And then another part is like the very real like imposter syndrome. Like sometimes I feel like I'm not doing good shit. Like I just feel like I'm faking it. I feel like I'm not making good work. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I feel like I'm just stuck. And then sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm on top of the world, so the stat battle, and then the
0: imposter syndrome is real, dude
1: it is, yeah,
0: there are people who go to therapists because of imposter syndrome mm hmm you know, I mean Mareko's mentioned that he feels like he has it every so often. you talk about one of the best knife makers in the country. I think a lot of people have it. I would imagine yeah. that you know i i the imposter syndrome for for anyone who doesn't know it's it's you feel like you don't. You feel like you're faking. You feel like you're fake. You don't believe that you deserve the praise you get. You don't believe you deserve the, uh, you know, whatever the people who are around you. you, don't, you they're giving you, you know, it's not. You don't feel like you deserve any praise. Like you feel like you are an imposter, and then somebody's going to figure that out sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I feel that all the time. Yeah, I could never do blade show for that reason. Hmm. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be. I don't want to be. I don't want someone to say, that's how you do your punch lines. You call that a scratch pattern. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally not prepared. My ego isn't prepared for that kind of criticism. Hmm. And that's what makes me feel like I have imposter syndrome. And I don't deserve, you know, whatever the praise. And the other thing is, is like another reason why is because a lot of these guys, and I know, you know, a lot of these big chefs too, they'll say stuff to make you feel good about yourself. And they'll call you like a master bladesmith. And you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, cut it out with that. <laughs> yeah, That's not, that's not the way it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I definitely definitely resonate with you there.
0: Well, I mean it's 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 I think that it's very I think that social media also, you know, it helps and hurts it because you know, when you're on when you're on Instagram and Facebook you can kind of create you you do create what you want how you wanna be seen. Oh yeah. And you're you're able to you're able to develop something. I mean I see social media for me as for just business. I like think I really I could give a shit about people's political opinions and I don't really care about... I, I like seeing my fa- my family's kids and stuff like that because I haven't seen them in a while. But other than that, like social media for me is completely for business. But I can imagine what you're doing is if you're focusing on being your business, then you're curating how people see you. And then you're, you know, you're creating this face that might not be how you feel inside.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky trap.
0: It is a tricky trap, but you're doing the tricky trap right. Like you're not falling, in, you're not falling on the banana peel, you know. I, 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 you know, especially the way you take your pictures, the way you do your th- your work, you know, you you do these beautiful hormones on your blades and your satin finish and just everything about your work, I find it very. If it, it finds, I find it very difficult that you have imposter syndrome. Hmm. That's all you're gonna say. Hmm. Come on, man. Uh, oh, well, I'm just This is a this. podcast, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. You got to say something. Come on, man.
1: <laughs> no, well, it goes back to what you said. Like, some, some days I just get in the shop and it's like, well, I don't feel like working. I, just, I have zero gumption and it's been like this for a few days. And, and then I just think, I was like, man, people give me praise, but I'm like a lazy sack of shit here. Yeah. And then, yeah.
0: Well, you also, when I... P.S. I did reach out to people for questions... For you, yeah, and there, they there, I have decided that the listeners of the full blast podcast write the worst questions, <laughs> and, and and the number one worst question came from you, which was oh. why do I suck? And that was <laughs> yeah. talk about like I mean, if you want to talk about like self sabotage, you you put in a question of why you suck, so. I'm gonna read you one of the only questions is worth a damn. I, actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna read the questions. I'll read some of the questions that were terrible. Hmm. Um, I'm just gonna read some of the questions. Well, Keith Deason. I don't know about you know Keith Deason. He's a good dude. He he wants to know where uh, have you seen my uh, my Phillips head screwdriver? I put it down and I can't find it. That's one question.
1: Well, and I don't have. I that's one of them that I can't find in my shop either. I have. I have like eight flatheads and one Phillips, and the Phillips is always gone.
0: I have want to throw out all my flathead screwdrivers except for a big one that I can use to pry, <laughs> and yeah. then the electrician's one. The electrician one, where it's four, it's a four in one. That's the only screwdriver worth the damn. Everything else you can throw it away. So there you go, Keith. We don't go go look at somewhere else. <laughs> then fiery ice and forge says I want you to say boner and butt jokes a lot and sprinkle them throughout the episode. So that's a great question. Hmm. Uh, Tom McLean, you know Tom McLean, McLean Customs, the king of the hand picks. Yeah. He just wrote hi Don. I'm telling you, these are bad, dude. These are bad. And then uh, here's a good one. <laughs> I mean. Tom, stop listening. If, you, if I ask you for a question, I want a, I want a question. I don't want, hi, Don. It's not even a question, for God's sake. <laughs> Don's fine, Tom. So this is one question that actually was worth a damn. Um, this comes from Tissac Basement Made. He mm-hmm. says, what do you think the best way to find your signature as a knife maker is? To find, you know, to find your signature work. How do you create your own design? That that's yours that when people see it you know that that's don wins knifer you know what i mean
1: mm-hmm. what do you
0: think the way what do you think that that's a tough one
1: that is tough and i think the answer is the same as when i started but it's a lot more difficult now because there's a lot more knife makers out there now but when i first started actually before i started making knives i was saving like thousands of photos of other knives that I see online and I just I just noted to myself I don't like this about that one. I like this one about that. I like the way these two features work together but I don't like, you know, the balance of that. And I just I would just go through that that gallery all the time mm-hmm. and I would just mentally log in my brain of what I liked, what I disliked. And I think having good taste, good taste that you can actually define yourself, is probably one of the most important parts to actually starting to make good work. And then after that is just trying stuff out And and then doing the same thing you you know to yourself What don't I like about this? Why and what can I do better for the next one? Hmm. And I, I know some people see my work and they're like, oh, well, you've been doing kind of the same thing for a while You found your thing like that's that's kind of it for you, right? And I don't think that's necessarily true I'm always playing with little details here and there and there's always something I don't like about on every knife that I do. And so, I always mentally log that for, like, the next iteration of whatever I'm doing. So, like, if I'm doing a hidden tang knife with a Western-style handle, there might be an angle or a transition or some interface that I was just like, you know, I'm not really happy with that. doesn't look elegant to me. But through making that knife, there's something in the process, there will probably be some sort of mistake or some sort of, like, transition from getting a rough shape to finish where I'm like, you know, that, that interface right there looks good. It won't work on this one, but I'll remember that for the next one. And that's just gotta, kind of what I've been doing for years, and that's how I've gotten to where I'm at now.
0: I got to tell you, I think that a Western-style handle on a hidden tang knife is one of the trickiest, the trickiest transitions of all time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I really believe that it's a tough... It's a super tough... turn For me, that's the toughest transition if I... I don't even do them anymore. I'll do what For hidden tang knives, I'll do wa handles because I feel like a Western-style handle for mine, they, for some reason, I just can't make them look that I like them.
1: Yeah, it's tough. It's tricky. There's super just, tricky. It's just a weird combination of Super things. weird. Yeah.
0: Super weird. I think that that's right. I think, that, I think it's important to have real conversations with yourself. And a lot of times, because, I mean... We, I've said this a million times. mean knife makers are thieves, and it's like I mean most makers are thieves. I think if you talk to Keith Decent, he's a who's a YouTuber and he's a he's a he's a maker too. He'll tell you that everyone's everyone ripping each other off. Everyone's yeah. making they're all they're all making furniture out of pallets, you know pallet furniture, and everyone looks the same. And I think it's hard to find your your signature. But I think what you really have to do is I I believe that part of your experience outside of knife making really kind of conditioned you to see what you like and you don't like. I mean the cars I when I see your when I see your knives, I kind of see like the movie version of the Batmobile. Hmm. Like it's it's got like it's got movement and they don't you know, a car and a knife you know when they're both stagnant you see them you can feel how they move and they have these lines and they have this direction and you can know where it is and I really for you I mean your knives you created a style and it doesn't matter what don't when whenever somebody says something you know dumb like what they said to you like uh, you know you're you're, you're, you're all over, it's a stupid thing to say but the thing is is you you made yourself something recognizable as I think that people could pick your knife out of a lineup in it without a, in a heartbeat that's the hardest thing that people have to do and it's small transitions you know Mhm. well that leads me to we're going to go to uh the last episode i had my old uh, my old partner nico tavernisi my buddy on uh we did the uh he and I had the uh, podcast called the Downward Spiral Podcast. And I had such a good time talking with him. We were talking about weird news. I thought I'd finish this up by asking, you know, reading you stories of weird stories. <laughs> but I wanted to, much like how the Makery Network has, we have ads that are like location oriented. Like I, I thought I'd have like a guest oriented questions. And so I found out some kind of weird stories to tell you. A lot of them are about ramen noodles. For some reason, I'm, like, obsessed with you and ramen. Oh, but the other yeah. one is a couple of them. Uh, maybe there's a car one, too. So I wanted to read you. Um, did you know the strange and twisted history of ramen noodles?
1: I I know a little bit, I think. But no, I don't really know the, the actual history.
0: This is... this is, this. is I didn't expect this to happen. So... Uh, the dark history of the world's most favorite comfort food it begins with two arch enemy nations Japan and China through their mutual hatred stretching back over the years when these countries made first contact about 400 AD they were very friendly the Chinese were much more advanced and the Japanese played eager students learning. I got this from mentalfloss.com. So don't, don't everybody, don't, don't think I got this from like some QAnon website or something like that. This is a completely, this, I thought it was legit and I'm going to keep reading it. The Chinese were much more advanced. The Japanese played eager students learning uh, learning such skills as how to write and how to make paper. They even borrowed the Chinese calendar. Ba, 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 ba. In 1895, a small nation, um, the small nation dealt China a humiliating defeat in a naval battle as the spoils of war, they annexed the province of Taiwan, wrestled Korea, most notably martial arts, okay, as well as parts of cuisine now. Here we go. And that's where ramen enters the story. In 1910, two Chinese cooks at a Tokyo uh, restaurant introduced a signature dish with salty broth and noodles, and they called it shina soba. Shina was for China, of course, and the soba was a buckwheat noodle that was a staple of the Japanese diet. These cooks kneaded their dough into with ken, kensui, a bubbly mineral water made from uh, uh, which made for a kind of longer, yellower, more elastic noodle. And then the shina soba caught on like gangbusters. It wasn't just the flavor and the texture the Japanese were enjoying; it was the noodles represented um by physically interacting with china through the ingestion of food and drink the chinese the japanese masses were brought closer to the ideal of empire on a deeper level the, Ch- the japanese understood uh that to eat shina soba was to gobble up their enemies what to gobble up their enemies so <laughs> if they're out they're against the chinese they would eat the soba noodles and it was to them it signified gobbling up their enemies in a sense it was Cannibalism without the bones and gristle After Japan's defeat in World War II The word Shina Was lost was Lost its shine A leftover token of imperialistic Aggression and wartime brutality Against China um, It was seen as an embarrassing ethnic slur So the Shina Soba was renamed Chuka Chuka so, Soba Chuka being a more acceptable term for the Chinese style The noodles finally entered the modern age In 1958 when the entrepreneur named Momofuku Ando introduced the first pre-packaged instant variation of the dip uh, the dish deep-fried uh, chicken flavor dehydrated and it was called chicken ramen the word derived from the Chinese word la that means to pull and main which is noodles and It hmm. quickly evolved into the word ramen all right there you go so uh, by 2005 eighty five point seven billion packs of ramen were being slurped every year that's a lot. And uh, Japan and China bury the hatchet. Yeah, there you go. So that, I thought it was interesting that they, it was uh, half of it was like, all right, let's, let's eat these motherfuckers.
1: <laughs> I haven't heard that one, actually. I, mean, I knew about the, the history a little bit where it came from, but that's, that's new to me.
0: Yeah. Cannibalism. Weird. All right. So here's something interesting if you decided that you wanted to take on another job. Uh, this is from October 13th. This is a news story. Top Ramen is offering a $10,000 $10, for the position of chief noodle officer. Ooh! The makers of Top Ramen announced they're seeking a chief noodle officer to get paid $10,000 to help develop and test new ramen soup recipes. Top Ramen manufacturer Neeson announced it's seeking the chief noodle officer with a passion for noodles. <laughs> That's what you have to have on your on your resume i have a passion for noodles to well, help test out you do have a top you do that's <laughs> why i thought maybe i you know maybe you know this you know the on top of the jaguar we could be a, you could be the, t- the chief noodle officer so interesting candidates are being instructed to post photos and recipes of their own top ramen creations to social media and the winner will be selected by celebrity judge um, Melissa King, a recent uh, winner of Top Chef All-Stars. The winner will receive $10,000 and a chance for a one-on-one mentorship. with oh, Nissan you know. CEO Mike Price and a 50-year supply of Top Ramen.
1: Dude. Okay. So I actually have been seeing that challenge on Instagram. I was like, huh, I wonder what that is. Now I know.
0: Dude, 10 Gs and $50,000. 50, 50 years of Top Ramen. You're never going to make it through 50 years if you're eating it all. No. That stuff is going to kill you. Ramen, packaged ramen is so bad for you. <laughs> it's so bad for you. It's like shocking. The salt yeah. content is through the roof. I actually, you know who, um, you know who Roy Choi is?
1: That sounds very familiar to me.
0: He's the chef who started this, uh, he started this truck called Koga, nu- Koga, Koga. It's a It's a California... Like a, I don't think it's a. Ta- it might be like a Korean style taco truck or something like that. He was also one of the producers on the movie Chef, the Favreau movie where you know he's a chef. That's a P.S. is an awesome movie. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? John Favreau, that. yeah. Movie Chef, um, and he travels across the country with his son on, on a, a, a taco truck and whatever. So Roy Choi did a Munchies episode where he he wrote what he does to make his ramen. Well, if he was drunk, he he come home drunk and he's hungry with his friends. And I did it and it was unbelievable. So what you do is he says you got to get two packets of ramen cuz one's not good enough. <laughs> I even I even know that. Yeah. And then you you know, you make this you make this you pour in the soup base, boil it up, throw the throw the ramen in there, you know, give it a couple minutes and then you you drop a couple you poach a couple eggs in there. So you then you open up the eggs and then you throw American cheese on top.
1: I know this trick actually.
0: And then sprinkle with um, with scallions, and you and you wolf it down in a drunken frenzy. What yeah. is your what is your ramen hack? What would you do? What would be your ramen hack for our listeners who are not going to obviously make you know get noodle knives and and, and like <laughs> make their own noodles? What is the best? I need the Don Win. Noodle off Chief Noodle Officer Hack.
1: Okay, so uh I actually don't eat that much instant noodles anymore. It's been years since I had some. But my my like soup hack now, I use it for almost any soup, is soy sauce and fish sauce. Instead of the soup base? Or you add it to it, plus some water. You dilute it a little bit and you add some more of the soy sauce and fish sauce. The soy sauce is is just it's super good to add to any broth. Like it, it makes it basically into like a shoyu. Yeah. Uh, and then the fish sauce is, I think transforms a lot of soups to give it a lot of like umami and stuff. It's so like pho has fish yeah. sauce. Ramen has a very complex version of that if you're doing like the, the actual tare and stuff like that. And it just makes it, it, it gives it more depth and it makes it taste a lot better.
0: Two things. You got to be real careful with the fish sauce. It can yeah, go yeah, just a, just
1: a, just a little bit. <laughs>
0: I think that if you just open up the fish sauce and take a smell, it's intense, and you can overboard fish sauce bad, easy, yeah. fast, mm-hmm. super fast. What's your soy sauce of? What kind of soy sauce do you buy?
1: Um, I, I
0: had that for a reason because because if if you show up to my house with lechoy, I can't be your friend anymore. You know about lechoy? No, I don't. That's some Chinese. That's some. Uh, that's the bottom shelf at your Asian section in the supermarket. Chinese, terrible tasting soy sauce. Oh. God, God, I mean, it's like when I was a kid, my mom, my dad always had the soy sauce. He always had a lechoy le that he never refrigerated, and I don't know what it turned into. But lechoy to me was always like, this is some. This is somebody who doesn't know what's going on here. Hmm. What kind of soy sauce do you get?
1: Uh i don't know the name of it but there's some that i buy at the asian grocery store that's pretty good it's like less sweet it has better flavor it's it's salty like really salty it's not like any of that diluted like low sodium bullshit
0: yeah yeah low sodium low sodium is is for the for the old people
1: but i think you could apply like this like that the rule of wine you buy the second cheapest one right i do that kind of with soy sauce
0: really that's
1: a good move
0: the second cheapest one. Yeah. I'm a Kiko Man guy down to the end. I mean, you know, Kiko Man is, as far as I'm concerned, is that is my... But, I mean, you know, Upper East Side white kid, Jewish white kid is, you know, I can do a little Kiko Man. Mm-hmm. And then what I like is the Ponzu version of Kiko Man. Kiko mm-hmm. Man soy sauce Ponzu is out of control. All right, there you go. That's that's the next thing. I, I did... My only other hack to... Uh, my only other hack to... Um, my kid and I were sick once, and I went to the supermarket. I grabbed some ramen. And I did the Roy Choi eggs and then the, the uh, American cheese. Yeah. And then there's a Northeast thing, and it's called Steakums. And they started out, Steakums was like this frozen shaved steak that was to basically make allow you to make Philly cheesesteaks at home. So they were like, a, it's a frozen block and they're all separate pieces and it's super, super thin and you could do shabu shabu with them and stuff like that. So huh. we would do, we would get the steakums and then just drop it in and then you'd have this like, but the salt content was like, you could feel it in your ankle. <laughs> like your throat started getting <laughs> oh, swollen. Geez. It was the salt content it was so crazy. So I think that you should for sure, um, shoot in for that top ramen, uh, chief noodle officer.
1: Hmm. I'll think about that.
0: Think about it. I mean, you know, I would. I mean, I would. But I mean, like, you know, (laughs) I should. I don't know why, you know. Have you ever heard of uh, Piranha Ramen? No, I haven't. In September, a cafe in Tokyo uh, will serve a thousand bowls of Piranha Ramen. Made with 300 kilos of piranha sourced from the Brazilian port of uh, Manoa. And they'll likely be the first ramen of their kind in Japan, if not the world. And it was supposed to be a joke. The idea came from Tom Yano, founder and CEO of the Tokyo-based events company Holiday Jack. While vacationing in the Brazilian Amazon, as he fished and cooked, they ate piranha daily. Yano acquired recipes from locals and became especially infatuated with the soup called uh, caldo de piranha, delicacy common... Uh, to the uh, people of Brazil, the bony fish were chunked and simmered in tomato-based soup with vegetables. Tastes really good. That's why I thought I'd bring the piranha soup, uh, the piranha soup. Uh, piranhas the ramen. So upon, upon uh, returning to Japan, uh, he posted that they will be serving the first piranha ramen event. Uh, the most ferocious and dangerous fish in the world uh thank you very much for reading this to the end this is oh fuck you it's an april fool's joke oh i didn't even fuck i was like god damn it i didn't <laughs> see i don't read these goddamn things this is a fuck it. fuck me i screwed this whole god god damn it
1: well you got played
0: i got played god damn it oh wait a second maybe i'm wrong uh despite the disclaimer yano says there's more oh uh, bad i didn't get played Despite the disclaimer, Yano says more than 500 calls poured in from Japanese international followers inquiring about tickets. I didn't expect the article to buzz. Given all the interest, Yano is following through with the event and will be serving what he believes to be the world's first Piranha Ramen. The joke became reality, so I didn't get played. What a roller coaster. I apologized. Coaster. That was a roller coaster, right? I was like, God damn, it's so fucking embarrassing. I'm reading this whole thing. It's a fucking <laughs> joke. And then he goes, the joke was reality. Yano spent three million. He spent $28,000 flying more than 2,000 whole piranha from Brazil to Japan. The puzzlement uh, of the customs agent who retained the fish for 13 hours in the Rita airport. The process is new to Holly Jack. Yano tells me uh, about the piranha fishing in minute. He's going to develop the piranha, piranha men, piranha men, piranha men, piranha men recipe, as he calls it, uh this ramen shop, and it's made with 100% piranha broth, and will be avail. Each bowl is twenty eight dollars, twenty cents, and then it adds a whole piranha on top for additional twenty three dollars. So this, this is like a six, turns into a sixty dollar bowl of brahmin
1: That's less than I thought, actually.
0: It, Opinions on the culinary value of the freshwater fish vary. A lover of rare meats option. Yano says it's good. It kind of tastes like Red Snapper. Uh, Almost the same. There you go. It's got uh, creamy, rich, rich creaminess. And they, as all these motherfuckers say, it's an aphrodisiac. I swear to God. The people with seafood, and every seafood is an aphrodisiac. It's It's like, come on, dudes. I mean... It's enough. Everything's everything from the water is an aphrodisiac. Give me a break. Okay, there you go. <laughs> it, oh, and it's uh he recently <laughs> this guy is, this guy's a pistol. So um, the ROM will be served five to nine. Um, and Yana recently opened the Ninja Cafe and Bar, where costume servers will have trained for a month in the ancient art of ninja. Uh, he, he's sending all his trainees to the ninja stronghold of Iga, not to take food orders, but to, to perform martial arts and throwing shuriken or blow darts, just in case eating piranha ramen alone is too tame. So, you're gonna get served a bowl of of piranha ramen by ninjas.
1: I'm just curious. Like, go ahead. What? Why? what is the ninja training gonna do
0: i like. think it's gonna be i don't know honestly i'm not i think if you were the if you were the chief noodle <laughs> the no- noodle <laughs> officer then you could probably send a message to yano saying hey wait a second chief noodle officer here what the fuck is going on with these ninjas and why are they serving me piranha ramen and why are you ser- why are you training them into like doing blowgun darts <laughs> i love piranha ramen but i think this guy seems to be quite a character he's he's all smoke and mirrors this guy
1: yeah it just sounds like gimmick on gimmick on gimmick
0: i you know what but god bless him i mean people are gonna eat that shit up yeah figuratively and literally (laughs) all right the next question the next (laughs) the next one if you should i keep going with these
1: sure if you like
0: all all right the next one is tokyo's 10 weirdest ramen shops Okay, the first one is the te- is tequila ramen, where the master takes mild shiso soup and spikes it with a shot of tequila. And oh. He tops it off with chili dusted chashu, heaping pile of cilantro, and a lime wedge. Huh. That's not so weird. Oh, here's a good one. <laughs> this one is funny. This is the uh, this restaurant is called Big Breast Ramen. Yes, that's a thing. Ramen bar snack uh, Izakawa is a small ramen bar run by uh, Tataki, uh, Takako. Takako Hayakawa, former hostess and pin-up model. Inside the shop, you will see a prominent sign reading "Opie Ramen. Opie is the common Japanese slang for big breasts. Hmm. Hayakawa-san and her assistant are indeed endowed as advertised. <laughs> and they also, this is like the uh, hooters of the ramen world, I guess. Um, they're, uh, they also tend to wear low-cut tops and bend forward conspicuously while they're preparing your ramen or drinks. The shop is more uh, of a traditional Japanese snack bar than a ramen shop, which means you should follow the local customs of putting in some time when ordering a few drinks before you request the food. Uh, they want you to have a few drinks before you order. Uh, ramen's light uh, shiro ramen with uh, seaweed and blah, blah, blah.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm honestly surprised <laughs> I haven't heard of that concept before.
0: What? Uh, Big-breasted ramen joints? Yeah. Why? Why are you surprised? I'm sure it exists. I mean.
1: I'm sure it exists, but I've never heard of that before. And that kind of surprised me.
0: She's also known as a skilled shit talker and a far bun, bar master. So huh. you can get some ramen and see some boobies. Well, you know, <laughs> all right. It's fine. I mean, look, once again, you know, you have your choice. You have piranha ninjas or big breasts. And obviously the ramen doesn't matter. You know, it's not the, I mean, I I would have a, which one are you going to? You picking those two, Piranha Ramen with Ninjas or Big Breasted Ramen. Where are you going? And this Mm -hmm. is the question because we don't even know what the ramen tastes like.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Which one are you going for?
1: I would probably try the Piranha one just because you can't get that anywhere else.
0: I'm going for the titties. Are you? I'm 100%. If you're giving me the choice, if, it's a, if I know that it's a classic ramen joint with a side order of breasts breasts, <laughs> versus like some ninjas giving you some fakakta piranhas, I think I might be going for the breasts.
1: Huh. Now I'm trying I to think th- of this in the context of like if I'm traveling and I'm choosing out my destination. That's right. Which one would be most memorable with my friends? Right.
0: Hmm. How do you have to be with friends though? Oh, <laughs> you don't have to get horned up I, well, with, I the, want to with the share big that bre- experience, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. See, see, that's the thing. It's like I'm I see in my mind I'm picturing this on by myself.
1: Hmm. I don't want to
0: get I, I went to a Knicks game last year with my my high school class, and they wanted to meet this is in New York City, Madison Square Garden, they wanted to meet at a Hooters. It's crazy to go to a Hooters in in New York City, in the middle of New York City. It's like, you're talking about the greatest restaurant, one of the greatest restaurant cities in the world, and they don't want to go to Hooters. When we went into the Hooters, I felt uncomfortable because all these dudes were getting all horned up next to these poor women serving, you know, their, uh, you know, wings with their cleavage out. But if I'm in
1: like Hmm. this,
0: if I'm on my own, and I have a choice between Ninja Piranhas and Big Breasted Ramen... I'm going with the ramen. I'm going with the big breasted ramen.
1: That's a fair choice.
0: I mean, you don't know if the I mean, you don't know if the piranha is going to be any good.
1: Oh, I would know expect it to be weird as shit.
0: Yeah, but you know the breasts are going to be fine, and the ramen's probably going to be passable.
1: That's true. Tough Choice. That's true. Choice.
0: All right, here's another one. <sighs> Coffee ramen. We need to keep going.
1: Yeah, I want to hear this list.
0: Alright, the co- this number three is coffee ramen with egg, kiwi, ham, and ice cream toppings.
1: Alright, that's weird to me.
0: Alright, I'm not going to even read that one. Alright, here the next one is pizza ramen. That's sounds guy, good. Uh, was created by a guy who goes by the name of Mr. M Trained. His name is Mr. M Trained. As a French and Italian chef, Mr. M ran several European restaurants in Tokyo before changing his focus to ramen. He brought back Italian cooking to bear on the bowls of his restaurant M's M's Pizza Soba is served Maze style that's high quality Sukumin noodles with Kano salmon are are draped over the bed of tomato sauce the blend of vegetables chicken oil and uh, dashi
1: I think I've heard of it actually
0: and he heaps on pizza toppings like fresh tomatoes onions, bell peppers olives, anchovies and garlic that That doesn't seem so it doesn't sound so weird to me
1: no, that sounds good That doesn't sound so good.
0: That sounds pretty good. Um, This one isn't that weird. It's just a reservation-only restaurant. There's the Monster Hayashi Uh, Chuka. This is in one of the best uh, Tokyo shops. It's a gut-buster version of a Jiro-style ramen.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: shop's gnarly Jiro balls pulling big lines every day. The ramen head comes from, uh, the ramen head comes from a wide lineup of crushed and infamous bowls. It's typical Chinese noodles, uh, but he does a Jiro. What's Jiro inspired?
1: Um, I don't, I'm not super familiar with it, but I know it's a style that's like pretty heavy to eat.
0: It's a heaping pile of diced daikon, Mizuna cherry tomatoes served over a huge helping of chilled noodles, chorshi, uh, pork back fat and a delicious sesame dressing Blanketing the whole heap right, that, that doesn't sound so weird
1: Sounds like a lot
0: The next one is the masked ramen That sounds like a lot but it doesn't sound weird I wouldn't call that weird I should really really read these before I <laughs> start talking about it uh, The next one is the masked ramen masters This dude uh, in his uh, He does crazy collaborations And he's always there wearing a mask There you go that's not weird either. Uh, that sounds, here's the. I,
1: yeah, that sounds normal in this year.
0: I mean, well, I mean, he, yes. I mean, I don't think it's. I think, but he's wearing like, he's wearing like a luchador masks. Hmm. He's just wearing goofy masks. It's not like this isn't pr- protecting any mask. masks. There's the ice cream cone ramen. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know what? None of these are that weird. It's. Just, I'm not gonna. It's not weird. It's just I'm not gonna go there.
1: The weird the, one was that weird kiwi ice cream. Yeah, one that, that was, was...
0: Oh, here's here's another one. Yeah, this list is like it's just bad. It's not weird. It's just like some of them are bad. I mean, some of them are good. Like the breast ramen's good. <laughs> it sounds good. And the, but everything else. Oh, here's pineapple ramen. Huh. Uh, the name is the name is oh my god. The name of this place is called Pa 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 Pine. That's the name of the restaurant. And they serve pineapple uh, on their ramen with a soft boiled egg i'm not a big fan of the soft boiled egg but i certainly wouldn't be with pineapple chunks Ugh. all right there's a this this list sucks ramen beast you did a bad job i did a bad job uh, let's see <laughs> if we can come up with one more story worth uh oh oh so here is this is the last story for you uh weird automotive news of night of 2019 I thought i'd read you this one um, uh, this is uh bummed out birthday boy pushes his gifted bmW into a river twenty year old Indian man gave a master class on how to not act on your birthday by pushing his brand new gifted bmW into a river. The stunt was captured on video by the young man who apparently choked at not having received a jaguar from his father. <laughs> He goes, yeah, that'll teach him. Uh, he later tried to fish the beamer out of the water with some help of onlookers, but no luck. We sincerely hope that this guy did not get the Jaguar. So he maybe he just needed York. He would have been happy with York Jaguar, maybe.
1: I don't know if anybody wants my Jaguar.
0: Well, I, the, obviously this kid didn't want it. The BMW was no good. I think <laughs> if somebody gave me a BMW, I don't think I would. The first thing I would do is complain and throw it in the river. It <laughs> Doesn't really seem like doesn't really seem like very nice uh, etiquette. That's not being very grateful. But especially, I would imagine, in India, if you're a 22-year-old Indian man, I would think that that would be on the rude side. All right, Tracy Morgan. Did you know that he had a Bugatti? No. He dinged it moments after being delivered. It took uh, $2 million to get Tracy Morgan, his white drop-top Bugatti Veyron Grand Sport in about 60 minutes to damage it uh, he wasn't actually as SNL uh it wasn't the Saturday Night Live uh, alumni's fault but rather the driver in the Honda CRV that bumped into him in the New York City intersection witnesses claim the woman was using her phone while driving didn't recognize Morgan after she hit his car damaging such a rare and beautiful car because you're on their phone sounds criminal but the police thought otherwise and didn't charge the woman he was he had just picked up this Bugatti and a woman was on a car and she just jacked him
1: this is why I don't like nice cars this is why I like driving pieces of shit would you,
0: is that right? are you, yeah. afra- are you afraid for, are you afraid of for other drivers?
1: yeah, cause like, I mean there's people on their phones all the time people are fucking crazy out there
0: How's the driving in Arizona? Any good?
1: Uh, it's hit or miss. A lot of times, a lot of times, it's bad drivers. Uh, I, but I that's think that's just everywhere.
0: No, uh, no, uh, that's a good one. No hit or miss. It's hit or miss. <laughs> I, 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 the, the idea of driving a fancy car, a two million dollar Bugatti, and, and getting it in a Fender Bender a few minutes after picking it up in Manhattan is pretty stomach turning. Yeah. Tesla owner tests autopilot on over trusting wife. Uh, not willing to take the brand's word for it, one Tesla owner decided to test the efficiency of his Model S auto braking system for himself. So while driving along around 30 uh, kilometers an hour, uh, he had his willing subject of a wife step out in front of the car while he's driving. Uh, huh. Take one when, according to Tesla's plan, the sedan automatically stopped short of hitting the pedestrian... Uh, but during the second run, YouTuber Chris Extreme was forced to apply the brakes himself, nearly striking his wife.
1: I know I have,
0: these people are so yeah, I don't, crazy.
1: I have no words.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm looking... Personally, I know this is probably not a popular opinion. I am looking forward to self-driving cars. I don't enjoy driving. I'm a very happy passenger. And if they can get it down, I'm perfectly happy as a passenger. I would be, I would, once they figure it all out, I will not be first online, but I will happily let someone else drive. I agree. You know,
1: for the most part, Especially, I would, I would like to be a passenger.
0: I, is What's what some people despise it. My sisters and I love it. I love being a passenger.
1: I, I like know. being able to sleep in cars. That's my oh, favorite part.
0: How great is that? And I don't understand motorcycles at all. Like, that's the one thing. Like, I have friends who drive motorcycles. And I talked to this one friend of mine, and he goes on these long motorcycle rides. I said, what is it like? He said, "Ah, eh, it hurts your back at the end. And you're sitting <laughs> up straight. You you know, you're sore. You have to stretch a little bit. Stretch? I, said, I thought that was supposed to be fun. He's like, Yeah, but, you know, you're sitting up straight, and you're always, in, you know, you can't take your eye <laughs> off the road for a second. You're in a car, you can drink your drink. You can drink your coffee. You can have a conversation. You don't have to wear special clothes. You can drive with one hand. You can look out the window a little bit. With motorcycles, I don't think you can do that. Uh, okay. Last but not least, man parks his Tesla on a stranger's lawn to steal the power overnight. This motherfucker <laughs> right here imagine walking up to finding your stranger's car parked on your front lawn then imagine it was an ev that was plugged into your home those are electric cars you get a battery pack and it's it hooks to your breaker panel and then it has like a little cord that you plug into your car and then it takes a long time to plug them in i know this my wife has an electric car and it's like if we don't plug it in the night before she ain't getting to work the next day because it takes too long yeah so to finish the story uh, the Florida homeowner initially thought his car might be belong to his friend's wife, um, but he once, uh, once ruled that out. He reportedly reported the, pre, uh, the presumptuous car parked Tesla by the police. By the time the authorities had arrived, however, so had the driver, the police explained to him that, uh, that what he had done was, in fact, both stupid and illegal. He wasn't charged. So the guy pulls into the driveway, plugs into this, his neighbor's thing, Bingo, bango, bongo. It's a stupid question. I, these were not great. These were not great stories. <laughs> these were not great stories. These weird stories were not great. I might have to just redo them some at some point. <laughs> so back to Don. Let's wrap this motherfucker up. What now? Finally, for the third and final time, what's next for Don Win?
1: Oh man, there's a lot. Uh, it changes all the time. So one is I'm finally getting my forge set up pretty soon. Oh nice. Yeah. I really want to start doing that, getting more like just forging in general and and starting to do like some Damascus work. And then I want to start learning how to do like basic gold inlays, Whoa. um starting to do more little embellishment stuff. And then I want to start expanding in the sense of like hiring a a video editor to start helping me with that kind of stuff because it's it's just so much work. And like I love it as a hobby. I love the storytelling part. I love writing out what I'm gonna do, and I do like editing. But every time I'm editing a video, it's like make knives, edit videos, make knives, edit videos, and it's not much else. So it's it's kind of draining.
0: I find that that's the one part about YouTube and videos. It's too much.
1: It's too much work. It's a lot. Yeah.
0: I can't. I can't get past the fact that it just seemed like this podcast, I don't do any editing. I just, we, you know, we'll talk and then that's the end of it. But the fact that all the editing and all that putting it together and the shots and everything like that, I really enjoy your YouTube videos. I hope you do more. And I think, and I do like your self deprecating humor too. Like (laughs) if something fucks up or something happens, or you mad at yourself? I'd like that. I I think that there's something very, uh, it's, it's very refreshing.
1: Thanks. Yeah. I want to normalize that. Like I, I feel like too many people out there are trying to portray this perfect version of themselves and it's kind of annoying to see all the time. It is annoying. But at the same
0: time, it's like you're also trying to put your best foot forward. I, the one thing that I can't stand is the YouTube comments. Like, and I know that uh, friends of mine who are YouTubers are very much along the lines of they like engage, they, like they like to fight. I, I, think that, I think that the YouTube, the hardest part about YouTube... And it's the same thing with podcasting. Is you the consistency is very important. Like especially considering yeah. your subscribers, and I mean, I would imagine. I know that for you, it's a hobby, but a lot of these guys, they get involved with that. You know, the more subscribers you get, the you know, you do have an opportunity to kind of like, um, you know, make the make the make the YouTube channel pay for itself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like I, that consistency part's tough
1: yeah that's the that's the hardest part i'm finding so far so but yeah, you do a great just, job uh, thank you yeah do you
0: think you're going to be doing a lot more in, so you're going to do a lot more engraving
1: i i don't know about full-on engraving but i i do like gold accents here and there like on a bolster i just like seeing a thin line of gold as a contrasting to like to like a jet black bolster like i yeah. think that's sexy stuff yeah. like that is just ugh, that that gets me going
0: the copper i mean the bronze and gold colors with black are hard to beat yeah hard to beat
1: yeah and i don't want to do a lot of gold i don't like i don't like fully engraved pieces i don't like just bling everywhere i just want one little accent maybe two and that's it there you go
0: don win yeah. if you don't know now you do if you want to talk about some of the best knife makers in the country, in the United States. I'm just going to use the United States because it gets a a little uncomfortable. Don Nguyen is in the mix. Highly sought after. A charming young man. He's got a design background that I find fascinating. You know his knives. You know his knives. And what you're going to do is, you're going to go to Instagram. I know most of you already do. Go follow him on Instagram, Don Nguyen Knives. And go support him also i don't know if he does it anymore but he does have like a car race a car and fooling around site called <laughs> just don things is that is that what it is yeah. just don things yep and maybe when you get that forge going you're gonna make more spoons right
1: uh yeah that's actually another thing on the list
0: p.s let's just quickly talk about the spoon thing <laughs> you made a spoon this was one of the best the best uh april fool's jokes of all time you made a spoon and you said i'm i'm stopping everything and i'm starting a spoon business gonna be don win spoons and you got it you got it on like the internet right you got like a, a report about it right
1: yeah so tucson foodie a local like food article blog site on in tucson uh they were just like hey we normally do an an april fool's article every year we'd like to do them with you just making something ridiculous so i was like Let's make a spoon. Let's just make a whole thing out of it. So they made an article. They basically took one of my old articles with them on my knife making. And they just replaced all the words with spoon. And Perfect. Then they, did a, they did a photo shoot with it.
0: It was, it was great. It was so funny. And everyone was so surprised. And then all these blacksmith friends of mine were like, you hear about these? He started a whole spoon company. He's like, this guy's a blacksmith. He makes a spoon company. I make a spoon. And then our friend Luis Pina... Yeah, shoots me a message saying you're ripping off Don. I was like, Luis, I'm gonna kill you. I'm like you're ripping <laughs> off Don. You think, you think he's the first guy invented spoons? It was hilarious. <laughs> he's like, go first, Don, and now you're hopping on board. I'm like, God damn it!
1: Yeah, I love it. it. Turned into this crazy inside joke, and everyone just started making like fun of it it was hilarious
0: it was great it was great I hope you do more of that kind of stuff I I think you have a terrific sense of humor and I'm a fan we've spoken before it's always a pleasure to speak with you I'm a big fan of everything you're doing and I hope whatever you're doing you're doing more of it
1: thank you yeah I I have fun talking with you I've always enjoyed talking business life and just you know random shit ramen big
0: big breasted ramen
1: yeah it's my favorite
0: Let's. Me, me, it's my new favorite, too. <laughs> now, everybody, you're going to go follow Don, and you're going to go follow the Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. You can interact with us. I still have to do the drawing for, if you want, I'm going to be closing it down in a couple of weeks. I have a pair of Isotunes uh, noise-canceling um, earphones. They're great earbuds, and I need you to send me your stories of... Um, your weird stories of redemption. I've gotten a couple that I love, but I need a couple more. So give me a couple more um, next week. I have a great guest. I'm hoping we're lining it up. We're hopefully we're going to be talking to Andreas Kalani. Andreas actually did a slight collaboration with Don. He made these beautiful handles with um, alumalite and all these, you know, plants inside and animals. And he, he's a fascinating character hopefully we're gonna be talking to him next week and then uh from then on in we gotta we gotta we're gonna have uh we're gonna have some fun including i'm gonna tell you now we're gonna have the black friday special it's gonna be the all cowboy day on the full blast podcast it's gonna be uh ben Snoor and jonathan porter for the black friday special i'm gonna have both those cowboys on and it's gonna be a whole lot of horseshit so i'm looking forward to that And thanks again, everybody. I enjoy doing this. It's been, you've been great. And uh, we'll see you every Friday, hopefully, as long as I can keep it up. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Don.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Outstanding. If you like this show,
0: take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.